This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. When did patriotism become a lightning rod, and why? On the right, it has become aligned with nationalism, and on the left, it is seen as an impediment to acknowledging exclusions and flaws in our founding documents and theories. Can we even resurrect common values and salvage patriotism? Stephen Smith, in his new book, Reclaiming Patriotism in an Age of Extremes, explores these issues. Professor Smith is the Alfred Coles Professor of Political Science at Yale, He has received several academic prizes and is the author of seven previous books. Stephen, welcome to Just the Right Book. Roxanne, thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, excellent. Uh, So, Stephen, I grew up with parents who loved America. It's freedom, it's safety, it's acceptance. And they were immigrants, they were Holocaust survivors. So there was a natural sense of relief uh, by coming uh, to this country. But was in fact that post-World War II period, did that represent a kind of a heyday of patriotism? I think it did, Roxanne. Uh, Just to situate my own story a little bit like that, my ancestors came a bit earlier than yours, around the turn of the last century immigrants from Russia, for the most part, Russia and Eastern Europe. They came to this country, originally to New York, and later migrated to Chicago, where I'm from. And I would say, yes, our grandparents, parents and grandparents, uh, lived in an intensely patriotic moment when patriotism was regarded as as unproblematic in, in some ways. I'm myself uh, a product of the 1960s. I was a teenager in the 60s. I started college in 1969 in a time when American patriotism was in a, being questioned uh, mm-hmm. in a way that has, has not really stopped since, since then, has in, a, has in a way, if anything, kind of grown. Uh, and, and morphed into uh, where patriotism was becoming a bad word. And part of my book, or I shouldn't say part of my book, the the entire book was written with an attempt to resurrect, to rehabilitate Mm. patriotism in a moment when it is under attack, as I argue, from from both the left and the right. Mm -hmm. Uh, The left, who for various reasons don't like patriotism, and the right, who I think misunderstand what patriotism is. So I'm trying to recapture something, maybe of an early from an earlier moment, but anyway, something I think is of great value and still we have a lot to benefit from. After the emotionally draining year we all endured in 2020, there are positive things on the horizon in 2021. It's time to take what we learned in 2020 and start heading in a new direction. That's why instead of just celebrating a month of mental health awareness, It should be our priority all year long. Take the first step with online therapy. I wholeheartedly recommend Talkspace for therapy. You can sign up online and start therapy the same day as you sign up. You can text, video, or send voice messages to your licensed therapist. So it's incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions from the comfort of your home. Talkspace lets you send and receive unlimited messages with your dedicated therapist in the Talkspace platform 24-7. With Talkspace, you set goals with your therapist, and they hold you accountable and make sure you're really progressing. Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, and be a guiding light. Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform that has thousands of licensed therapists trained in over 40 specialties, including anxiety, depression, relationships, and more. Your therapist can help you set and achieve your goals. Talkspace is a fraction of the cost of in-person therapy. Instead of waiting for an appointment, you can send unlimited messages to your therapist 24-7 and they'll engage with you daily, five days a week. Talkspace is secure and private using the latest end-to-end bank-grade encryption technology 
to store client information and complying with the latest HIPAA regulations. As a listener of the Just Right Book podcast, you'll get $100 off of your first month with Talkspace. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com and make sure to use the code JustTheRightBook to get $100 off of your first month and show your support for the show. That's once again, JustTheRightBook and Talkspace.com. Now, back to the show. So, Stephen, let's take it back a second, because I think that um, as I read the book and I thought about, you know, we use the word patriotism and it conjures up certain things. But you spend a good amount of time and history in even defining what patriotism is. So let's ground our conversation in how you would describe and define patriotism. Okay, Uh, I'm not operating with a necessarily new or um, some kind of eccentric definition of patriotism. Patriotism means love of country. Uh, It is, as I argue at some length in the book, a form of loyalty. Patriotism Mm -hmm. is is a type of loyalty. And And there are many loyalty enhancing uh, properties. Uh, for example, we are loyal to family. We are loyal to sports teams. We are loyal to institutions. We are loyal to country. Patriotism is one form of loyalty in a kind of, you may say, expanding circle of loyalties. Mm-hmm. Um, and for that very reason, patriotism has always been, uh, in many ways, a contested virtue. Why? because it has to contend with conflicting loyalties. We are, we are beings with multiple loyalties. Uh, loyalty to country is one, uh, a very important one, I feel, and one not to be uh, rejected, but it is in contention with, with others. And we can talk about that because the most obvious uh, contenders uh, in, in this conflict of loyalties are family uh, in some respects, and also religion, which poses uh, problems in some ways for, for love of country, because it suggests a loyalty to, to another, uh, perhaps high, higher source. So let's explore that idea of loyalty, because one of the things that um, I think many of us have been struck by over the last five to 10 years, maybe even longer, is that those that represent us in Congress Mm -hmm. seem to have shifted, some have, a loyalty to the country and displaced it with a loyalty to their party. And is, is is that new? Is that different? I mean, why is it that it seems so stark now where you look at them and you think, wow, you're, you're serving our government, our country, our population. When did, when did this other loyalty seem to supersede what you would assume was their primary loyalty? Well, uh, partisanship in the sense of loyalty to political party has always been a factor to some degree uh, going back to what you mentioned earlier we you and i probably grew up in a time when the uh, sort of a golden moment in some ways when the kind of intense political partisanship was was not as pronounced when people worked together and the parties often overlapped in, 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 many, in many ways. Uh, there were liberal Republicans, there were conservative Democrats, and they, 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 found, they, they found a way to find a middle. As, as we know, that's no longer really the, case, really the case today. But I would say that was a kind of golden moment. Uh, for the mm-hmm. most part, American history has been shaped by intense partisanship which is why I think in many ways, patriotism is a difficult virtue uh, because it does require uh, partisans to look beyond party or look look Mm -hmm. above party. Um, One of the things I argue in the book is that patriotism is not part of our DNA. I mean, we're not born this way. We're not, it's not, it's not 
given to us by some biological or gift. Uh, it has to be taught without teachers, without texts, without teachers. Uh, it's very easy to fall into the kind of intense partisanship uh, of the kind that you just discussed and described. Yeah, and I want to come back to this topic of teaching and the role of civics in our educational curriculum. So when, in reading the book, so you talk about a period, a different period of time. You talk about the Know Nothing Party. And, and besides wanting to know why a party would name themselves Know Nothing, which I'd really like to know, that too was a time in the 1850s of a patriotism being defined by a kind of nationalism. It, yeah. So, because then I want to contrast it with how Lincoln began talking about patriotism. So let's start with this. Why did they name themselves the No Nothing? Why would you name yourself that? Well, they were actually called the American Party. Oh, why are they referred to as the Know Nothing because, Party? Because when they were under suspicion, I believe, they, they said, I, I don't know. I, I know nothing. <laughs> they, claim, they claim not to be a part of it. They say, I don't know. And they became known as the Know Nothings. Their high point was the election of Millard Fillmore, who was our, uh, until recently, our first Know Nothing president. <laughs> but the Know Nothings represented, or the American Party, as it, as it was called, was the first kind of ethnic party. They were, you might say, the party of the what became later known as the WASP. They were a WASP party. They were, they, they thought of America as a, as a country of, you know, Anglo-Saxon Protestants. They were opposed, they were deeply opposed to the wave of especially Irish, but also German immigrants who were coming into the country uh, at that time in an, in an early wave of immigration, particularly after 1848 revolutions in Germany and elsewhere in Europe, uh, they became, they defined themselves as the American party. Uh, if you ever saw the film, uh, Martin Scorsese's film, Gangs of New York, mm -hmm. uh, the Daniel Day-Lewis character, Bill the Butcher, he is, he is part of the American party. You know, they're very anti-immigrant, anti very anti-Irish. And he had a wonderful sort of vivid uh, depiction of, of what that kind of party represented. And, and that, you, you, we might, I'm not sure to, it's quite correct to say they're the first nationalist party, uh, but they expressed an, a relatively early version of what nationalism would later become. It would become mm -hmm. a party of ethnic America. It would define America as an ethnic nation, uh, an Anglo-Protestant nation. And that is a conception of America that, as we know, uh, still um, has considerable power behind it, considerable number of voices behind it, uh, and in support of that, that vision of America. But my argument is that patriotism and nationalism uh, which I discuss at some length in the book, mm -hmm. uh, really pull in quite different directions. Uh, just to use one simple example before we move on, it's not uncommon, uh, and in fact, in a certain way, it makes perfect sense for someone to describe themselves as a white nationalist. Uh, the former Iowa Congressman Steve King uh, did this quite prominently. Uh, so he's a white nationalist. You never hear anybody say, I'm a white patriot. Mm -hmm. uh, the terms don't fit together in, in a right. way. They don't, they They're don't actually moronic. They don't, yeah, it is. And th that tells me something. Uh, it tells me that the, the terms mean two quite and stand for two quite different things. So, Stephen, if we if we look at the you, in your book, you you say in an age of extremes. So I want to make sure we ground the conversation. So on the right, we have the vestiges of the American Party, as you say, a nationalistic um, view of what the country ought to be, which is predominantly white and Anglo-Saxon still, that's a view, and that everything else 
is beginning to undermine and dilute the idea of an America as they want to see it. On the left, on the other hand, we have a dismissal of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence as defining our country because it excluded uh, Blacks, Native Americans, and therefore they want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. In the middle, I was very struck by um, the language from many of Lincoln's speeches that adopted the notion of it was an imperfect beginning, but it had the bones, the makings, the structure upon which we could perfect our type of government. And what happened, does that notion, first help us explore how Lincoln looked at this and how do we, because I think your book addresses this, how do we resurrect that notion of Lincoln's that can again create the idea of a common vision and value? Well, Roxanne, you put your finger on a great point and you probably noticed in the book that Lincoln uh, in many ways is the hero of the book. Yeah. Uh, When I try to work out my ideal form of American patriotism, it is largely based on a a certain reading of of Lincoln's thought and his his ideas about about what, what America was. Lincoln always took his cue, said he did at least, take him at his word, from the Declaration of Independence and in particularly from its equality clause. Uh, for Lincoln, that was, that was foundational. Uh, that, that was the foundation of America, its, its principle of equality. And as he said in the Gettysburg Address, our dedication to that, to that principle. Uh, without that, um, we have a very different kind, of, we have a very different kind of world. Uh, but Lincoln clearly knew uh, as he said over, as he repeated over and over again, that it, it just to, to state the principle of equality is not the same thing as saying that that principle has been realized or it has been uh, it, it, it has been uh, turned into fact. Uh, in fact, he lived at a point where he lived at a time in many ways where the principle of equality was in in retreat. Right. Uh, Slavery was, the slave cause was on the rise, uh, various, uh, yeah, uh, ethnic, uh, we talked about the know-nothings a minute ago, there a lot of uh, racial, beginning of racial and ethnic antagonism, but anything it looked like, like, like equality was, was, was in retreat. Uh, but Lincoln tied patriotism to a, excuse me, he tied equality to a sense of inclusion, he made a point uh, in various speeches of including immigrants, uh, people recently arrived in this country within the American family. He was willing, clearly thought it important to extend that to enslaved African-Americans who, uh, who enjoyed, uh, who should enjoy their, their natural rights as, 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 other, as other Americans did. And he also tied the principle of, of equality to an idea of progress. Uh, this was a progressive ideal. Mm-hmm. Uh, talked about, he talks about the way in which uh, equality must uh, be constantly- Nurtured. Uh, nurtured and, and developed. He, it's not to say, that Lincoln was a progressive in the way we understand that term today, because he understood that uh, that equality would always have its uh, that there would always be, be you know two steps forward, one back, and mm-hmm. it was not going to be. He knew it was not going to be a, a smooth or an easy ride. He didn't just see a kind of linear progressive movement to the realization of equality. He knew it required commitment, it required struggle, uh, it would require blood and tears. Uh, there was a, a kind of a tragic sense to, to his idea of equality and, and, and progress as well. He knew it would not be achieved easily or over in a day. And I think too many people today have just given up on that idea. 
I mean, I really think it's a, it's a noble ideal. It's one worth keeping and constantly reminding ourselves of. And it's it's easy to quit. And that's what mm -hmm. I sense a lot of people have done. They've just given up. And uh, they say, you know, we need to try something else. Or And and I, I feel, you know, democracy is a struggle. Patriotism is a struggle. It's an ongoing struggle. Lincoln knew this. And I think it's something we should, we should, as frustrating as it is, uh, as frustrating as it is, uh, what did he say? It's the last best hope of earth. And mm -hmm. we have to constantly remind ourselves of that fact. So Stephen, I, so I did get, I did, I loved the part, I mean, I love the whole book, but I loved the part that you, you gain an understanding of how Lincoln both struggled and respected uh, the founding documents that we had. We, and one of the things, uh, I'm going to read uh, this. In, in the book, you talk about, and I think we sometimes forget this, which is why I'd like to bring it up, is um, you talk about our founding and Thomas Paine you, I'm quoting now, I'm reading from the book, Paine, by contrast, tended to view the revolution not as something specifically American, but as a world historical event in which government, for the first time, was based on the theory of human rights, which prompts me to ask the very basic question, was in what way was our Constitution and Declaration of Independence unique at the time, at that time, in how we looked at, and how the world looked at government? They were absolutely unique at the time. Uh, I'll just take two, two quick examples of that. One is, uh, we were the first country to have a written constitution. Today, that seems completely banal, wow. because everybody all constitutions today are written are written constitutions for the most part, but in the 18th century that was a novelty. There were not there were not written constitutions. The the country and obviously that comes closest in in terms of its legal traditions and so on to the American founders was Great Britain, but Great Britain famously does not even to this day does not have a written constitution. There. Mm constitution, as it's called, is embodied in its traditions, its laws, but there is not a written document. So we were unique in having a written constitution. That's one thing. The second thing is you, is the quotation that you, from the book that you just read from Thomas Paine, is that our founding um, is based on a doctrine of human rights or natural rights, as they were called in the 18th century. Again, an absolutely novel idea at, at the time. Uh, a decade or so later, the French uh, adopted or you know, their own constitution based on you know, the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen. But at the, again, at the time in the 18th century, the idea of, of human rights or natural rights, much less a government created to defend those rights was an was an absolute novelty in 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 political and in, in, in world history and our and our patriotism just to sort of tie this back to where we were going has been always uh, in many ways rooted in this constitutional and republican tradition uh, our con our patriotism is a uniquely constitutional patriotism it's not a patriotism of blood and soil. It's not a patriotism rooted in, you know, divine promises. It is a patriotism rooted in a constitution, a constitutional form, and, and a particular Republican kind of constitution. And I think, again... And just for clarification, Stephen, when you use the word Republican, you don't mean that in the sense of the Republican Party. It's versus a notion of pluralism. No, I mean that in the sense that uh, the 18th century uh, founders meant it, which is a republic was a government in which the people, uh, the people were sovereign. I mean, 
we could talk about, you know, today we tend to speak of democracy rather than republics. Uh, the founders, uh, there, there, there was a linguistic issue involved and, and, and an important one. But when I use the term republic, I care, I'm, I'm largely using it in the sense of self-government. Mm-hmm. What we would a call, limited what we government. Call today, a limited government, what we would call today democratic government largely. Mm-hmm. And so, Stephen, what would you say, so when you, you know, at the very beginning uh, of the book, you talk about that our founding documents had an adherence to certain beliefs about equality, liberty, individual rights, and limited government. So as we've touched on, on the left, there's a um, perspective, an understandable perspective that, yeah, we had blah, 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 blah. We've got all this language. And when we say equal rights, we basically meant white men. And therefore, how can we as a country take pride in a document that actually excluded all these people? So what what's a... What's a thoughtful response to that criticism? Well, there was, there was certainly at the time uh, a, a discuss. It was, it wasn't. I mean, I know it. It has become a kind of, um, it has become a kind of assumption that when the founders talk about equal rights, they meant equal rights only for white males. But in fact, at the time of the founding, there was a great deal of discussion and debate about what equality meant, mm-hmm. who was included under the umbrella. I mean, there were, and there, and there, and there were considerable difference, differences of opinion about this. Uh, none of them probably went as far as we would want to go today, but it wasn't simply an assumption that uh, uh, equality and the principle of rights just applied to wealth, wealthy white males. But the important part, the important point from my point of view is that whatever the limitations of the way in which equality was applied in the, at the founding period, it opened the door in a way that had never been done before. Mm-hmm. Opened the door when, when the declaration says all men are created equal. Well, today we would probably say all persons. And again, who is included under the term all? All, does that just mean whites? But uh, you might want to say all, all means all, all means everybody. And I think our, history and our our constitutional history has been an ongoing struggle over how to define that all, who is included, uh, what is the the principle of inclusion. But without that, uh, without that, where where would we be? I mean, Mm -hmm. so uh, I reject the idea that because these principles were applied in a more limited sense than, than we would want today, that therefore the principles are are inherently tainted, that they are inherently uh, class or race based. That is that is something I, I just think is is false to the record. And so now let's go to the other side. On the right, there is the um, notion that adhering to these principles requires a uniformity of thinking the opposite of a melting pot, right? The total opposite of a melting pot. They forgot they were immigrants two minutes ago and now they're non-immigrants. So what's the response to their contention that by expanding the definition of who's an American, we in fact undermine the singularity of who we are as a country? Talk to them. Well, one of the stories I use in the book about uh, reminding people uh, that we are a nation of immigrants is when uh, FDR addressed the daughters of the American and FDR, you know, his his family, they. Yeah, they were it. Yeah, they were. They were (laughs) the beginning. Uh, when he addressed the daughters of the American Revolution, you know, the most conservative uh, organization of that period, he addressed them as fellow immigrants, he said. 
to remind them. Even you know, I never heard that. Yeah, that's not that great. Uh, Jeez, I love that. Them, and, unless they were Native <laughs> Americans, everybody's family came came from somewhere else. That was that was just oh, a geez. wonderful moment, and I, I think that kind of reminds us to, to that we all we all of us we are some somewhere else. But I think in many ways the nationalist response that you discussed is is based on on a kind of willed blindness mm. uh, to the fact of modern nation states. We are today, I mean, whatever the situation may have been in the 18th and parts of the 19th century, uh, pluralism is simply the fact of all modern nation states. Uh, Moral pluralism, ethnic pluralism, cultural pluralism. These are facts that we can't Simply wish away, even if we wanted to. These, this, this is this is who we are. I, I think I think for the better. And but the point the point is, as I understand it, patriotism is based on a recognition. Uh, at least American patriotism is based on a recognition of this fact of diversity, of this diversity and pluralism that is created who we are, and it was a diversity that the Federalists, um, I mean, again, it's hard to necessarily use these contemporary terms to describe their view, but in Federalist number 10, Madison spoke about a country that would no longer just uh, be homogeneous in terms of its religion, its ethnicity. He spoke about a vast country that would have different interests. He talked about groups and factions, uh, opening the again, opening the door to an appreciation of the fact of diversity, which has become a very much, as much as anything, a part of the American creed and something that patriotism uh, as I think of it, can take a legitimate pr- pride in, in this fact that we are a country of immigrants, that we are a people that va- value diversity, while at the same time uh, ex- expressing a, a sort of loyalty and fidelity to the country that, that has, has, has allowed this, this kind of diversity to, to flourish. Uh, the, that's the original meaning out of, you know, the national... Uh, on our currency, e pluribus unum, out, out of many, one. Mm. Uh, you, you know, we're creating one, but out of many. It doesn't mean that the many that, that are different points of origin and different beginning points will be eliminated, but that we can take, we can appreciate the manyness while still holding it together with a sense of common purpose. And, and speaking of manyness and pluralism, you do address quite particularly that that doesn't mean that you can find your loyalty as a citizen of the world, that mm-hmm. that 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 isn't the answer to how we define a kind of patriotism or develop the, the way forward for our country. Talk a little bit about that. Well, that that's one of the other um, that's one of the other um, alternatives to patriotism that that I reject. We've spoken about nationalism and how it represents one kind of alternative to patriotism. Uh, we've spoken a little bit about multiculturalism and how you know identity politics uh, has attacks the principles of the um, American uh, founding. But one of the important strands of, I would call anti-patriotism is the current trend towards cosmo- what we call cosmopolitanism. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, was, this was riding a little higher uh, a few years back, particularly in the years after the Cold War, when it came to be believed by many people Particularly in colleges and universities, that that now with the with the great struggles of the twentieth century, the earlier one against fascism and Nazism, the later struggle against communism, that there were no longer need for 
nations and nation states in quite the same way there had, had been earlier on. In any way, we were, we, were, we were increasingly becoming part of an interlocking globe, a, a, a world. Our problems would increasingly be problems of global markets, global trade. And our problems, which are still with us in many ways, would become increasingly global and slow, global health. We have a pandemic now, we're dealing with global warming. It's not something that any one country can do on its own, it requires. And so the idea came to be that uh, states and nations were something we need to outgrow. And we need to think of ourselves as citizens of the world, uh, whose obligations and allegiances were not to country, but to humanity in some way, mm -hmm. to, to citizens, to being, to being citizens of, of the world. Many issues do have to be dealt with at an international level, but we, we have seen increasingly that nations and states are not uh, something that we can simply wish away. Uh, the EU, for example, which was for many people a kind of model of a kind of transnational form right. of government, uh, is now we, we can see it's really it, its problems and it's uh, the, da the the problems inherent in the kind of I would say EU utopianism that uh, sort of uh, uh, focused focused on the idea that we were that here Europe was a model that would transcend the nation state as its basic unit. I remain very much committed to states and nations and to, to use a very unfashionable term, borders. I think these are essential to the world order and to maintaining a sense of who we are. Um, and why? And why, Stephen? Partly because of questions of stability, order and stability, which mm -hmm. I I think are things we, as, as Americans, we take far too much. We take far too much for granted. Maybe not anymore. <laughs> Maybe not anymore. Exactly, but uh, we ha we have have taken them them far far too much for granted, uh, and and also I think that uh, it is it is our commitments to our countries that for many people are a source of, give them a sense of dignity, of pride, of, of, of purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, it's, a, it's, it's sort of a cliche, but I'll say it anyway, uh, that, you know, the citizen of the world is a citizen of nowhere. Yeah. Uh, nations and states are, are important, I think, uh, not only you know, instrumentally, again, as I've said, because of issues for order and stability in a chaotic world, but also, again, I think because they, they give people a sense of, of purpose and pride that's mm -hmm. very important. So, Stephen, thinking of stability, as I was reading the book, two, two things kind of converged in my mind. One is your view of judging a revolutionary versus a terrorist. And the other is, which is probably a bigger conversation than we might have time for now, is the degree to which information or misinformation or control of information, i.e. propaganda, by itself undermines democracy and how people view a circumstance. And I think that drives so much of how we now think about patriotism. Roxanne, you've mentioned so many topics of great importance, given me much to think about here. Let me... <laughs> Maybe too much, but let's try and, to break it down I, into little pieces. Since you brought up 9-11, let me tell you a fact about the book, which uh, actually I don't talk about in the book. Uh, the book had its origins in the immediate post 9-11 period. On September 14th, I believe it was, just days after, hours after 9-11, uh, a panel was held at Yale at Battelle Chapel, the, the largest venue on campus. And several of the speakers that you mentioned were at 
your book panel out in Madison, also participated in this panel. And what I heard on that panel was exactly that kind of language. Well, the World Trade Center just went down. One man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. It was that kind of language. It was so deeply, deeply disturbing and offensive to me that in the days after 9-11, when we had been attacked, when thousands of Americans had lost their lives, when you know a major piece of Manhattan had been, and, and, the, and, the, and the Pentagon had been destroyed, that we couldn't at Yale, at least some people were unwilling to stand up and defend their country against this and rather fall back into this kind of lazy relativism that says, well, who, who are we to judge? How do mm -hmm. we know? And the book got its start on that night. What do I mean by that? I didn't start writing it that night, but I, I taught for many years a class at Yale, uh, a lect lecture class called in, simply called Introduction to Political Philosophy. And just in, is in teaching a class is, is many ways the same as in writing a book or making a film. The, the, the hardest thing is knowing how to end it. You know, the end is right. the hard part. And uh, I began, I wrote out a lecture uh, for that year in the last class called In Defense of Patriotism. Mm. Focused on the question, here we're studying this tradition of political philosophy, it begins with Plato and Socrates, and I would trace it up to Tocqueville. It ended with the question, what, what do we owe our country? A question that, oh, by the way, all the great political philosophers have discussed at some point or another. All, all, all great, the great thinkers have focused on this question. Patriotism was not an uh, it, it was always in some ways a contestable virtue, but it was a virtue. Mm -hmm. And it was an, it was an idea that was lost, had, had, was becoming lost in higher education, in, in our teaching and, and in higher education. I began using that as the final lecture of the course. The idea of turning it into a book was not something I was even remotely thinking about at the time, I was doing other things, et cetera. But over time, and I, I stopped teaching the course a number of years ago, someone else took it over, but the idea stuck with me. And I returned to it again and again, and eventually I began to think, you know, this could be a book, and it could be a short book, which thankfully it is. I didn't wanna write a long book about this. Nobody wants to read a long book about this. Mm -hmm. Short is better. And it, but it was on that night, right after 9-11. That's that so I, funny. And students for the first, you know, for the first time since I'd been teaching, this was a question students wanted, wanted, were very much concerned with. You yeah. know, what, what can we do? What can we do? They didn't want to hear, oh, one man's terrorist is another man's patriot. No, they wanted to know what they could do for their country. And, you know, they were being sadly uh, miseducated about this. And uh, for the first time since I'd been at Yale, many students had signed up for military service after graduation and so on. And my book end, or it doesn't quite end, but in the last chapter of the book, I do propose as, as a way of sort of reinvigorating a sense of national pride and purpose, an idea for some kind of national service. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean the draft and national service can take many forms. It can take uh, military service, it can take serving, can take teaching in a, in a, in a, in a, a poor neighborhood. It can be, mean some kind of service to an under, uh, served community it could take many forms, but it's a way of of it would be a way of one of the problems is that as a vast country like this, we don't know we don't really know each other. We live in these silos. Uh, I live in the Yale bubble. You know, I'm I'm as guilty of this as anybody else. I I live in downtown New Haven in this Yale bubble. Uh, other people live in the Fox News bubble, you might say. We don't know each other. And of course, when you don't know each other, it's easy 
to suspect the worst. Of, and of you know, Stephen, one of the things I love, I, I absolutely, I'm a huge fan of this idea of national service because one of the things that you very quickly learn and understand that the closer you get to the reality of of another, whoever an other is to you, the less likely you are to generalize. Right. Like you might dislike immigrants as a whole, but you love the immigrant you know, mm-hmm. one who became your son-in-law or daughter-in-law. So that what I love about the idea of national service is exa- getting to know each other will actually be to our benefit. Right. That people are not as singular as we, you know, there was um, a book written by two Yale students uh, who uh, drove across the country. One was a Democrat, one was a Republican. And they talked about all the time being surprised by a guy wearing a MAGA hat who was not against LBGQP rights because his sister was a lesbian. You know, and so we, you know, we want to paint, you know, it's a cliche, obviously, to paint people with a broad brush, but that's what we've done, right? We've all done that. We've painted ourselves into little corners and we're not coming into the middle to even get to know each other. So I'm, when you start the national service uh, game, Stephen, you call me and I, I'll be I'll be helping helping you out, but it, let, let me. When pre, excuse me, when President Biden listens to this interview and takes it to heart, you and I can sign up. Okay, all right, that sounds like a plan. We'll get this going. We'll get this going. I, I want to make sure that we get to two last mm-hmm. items before we get to your thoughts on how we move out of this period of extremes and reunite. So. One is, to what degree do you think we come to periods of extreme when, as a country, we don't have an existential threat? I think it's interesting what you said about after 9-11, there was a resurgence of patriotism. And to what extent do we undermine patriotism and inclusion when there's not economic prosperity across the country. In other words, a lot of nationalists see a zero-sum game. If, if, if somebody else wins, they lose. That You don't feel that way during times of prosperity. So do you think those two factors drive a sense of extreme? One, the idea of a zero-sum game and... Um, the other, the foreign enemy problem. Yeah, the, yeah, the existential threat. That problem. Yeah, I mean, I think, let me start with the, uh, that one first, because uh, in many ways, to go back to the very beginning of our conversation, uh, we were both children of the Cold War. We grew up in a period where um, it was the world was divided clearly between the U.S. and the Soviet Union and its, its our various spheres of influence. There was there was an enemy. There was a clear and as you said existential enemy. What happened after 1989 with the implosion of the Soviet Union and the collapse of communism as an ideology, uh, although in many ways it had collapsed as an ideology long before 1989 is uh, in many ways it gave it gave rise to two conflicting uh kind of i would say sensibilities in a way one uh there was great celebration that from now on the future of the world was going to be uh, a world of free markets and democracies kind of market democracy that was the future and it looked like an ever-expanding world of markets and so on, and democratic government. And people talked about transitions to democracy. I had many colleagues at the time who would look at different parts of the world and try to figure out what were the 
conditions for transitions to democracy because it was an assumption that democracy was the only game in town. It would be the only. It was. It was in a way the the future. It was a highly utopian uh, image. But on the other hand, uh, that turned the 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 lack of a of as you put it an existential threat to who we are began to turn inward mm-hmm. uh, without an enemy from abroad uh, we began to look for enemies within right and we've seen that we've seen how that story has played out uh, in recent years the immigrant has now become the, it was for a while. It was the terrorist who was who was the enemy, and they were. I certainly they were. But now the immigrant. Uh, it's very easy to begin identifying enemies, and when you don't have a foreign enemy, you it, it's very easy to start constructing domestic enemies. And I think that let, let me let me just ask this question that that struck me is. Do we need enemies? Do we need some kind of enemy all the time? Or I don't know that we. Works? I don't know that we do, but a lot of people seem to seem to need that. Yeah, a lot of people seem to need that uh, for whatever reason. Um, huh. Yeah, it's a it's a harsh fact. I would I would say, but I think a lot of people need a sense of the enemy, the other, the other, sort of say in kind of academic jargon, the other, uh, usually with a with a capital O. Uh, yeah, um, that is a. I'm a political scientist, after all, and we're supposed to we're supposed to look at the at the world as it is, not just the way we would like things to be. Uh, the idea that the world is divided into uh, friends and enemies. And if you don't have, if you can't find an external enemy, you will look for an internal enemy to mm-hmm. find. Uh, this is a powerful, uh, this is a powerful ideology, which I think is central to the na- to the nationalist way of thinking. And do I wish things were otherwise? Yes, but uh, again, I, I can't just wish something away because I, I don't like it. Um, nationalism has been for two centuries and more a an important fact of political of, of modern political life, and it's driven a great deal of the disruptions that we have seen in in modern politics. Particularly, I mean, we could go back to history. We could look back at the disruptions that were created by, particularly after World War I with the displacement of the old empires, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Russian Empire, you know, creating the net, what what were called the national problem. And what happened after that, of course, was that people who didn't fit the national stereotype found themselves homeless. They found themselves displaced. They found themselves put in displaced persons camps. And, you know, that 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 is a big story of the 20th century, how nationalism uh, has created a kind of politics of displacement. Uh, but that is that is very powerful. I you know, I can't I can't find um, I can't just just wish it away. But what I can try to do is to try to oppose it with what I think is a is a doctrine of, of a kind of decent patriotism, or what I call in the book in that in that chapter, enlightened patriot, enlightened right. patriotism, uh, because I think patriotism is based, uh, as I say, in a different there's a different psychological and moral register to patriotism. It's about pride and gratitude for who we are and and what has made us, to be sure. But pride and gratitude have another side to them as well. Patriotism is capable of feeling, at least as I understand it, enlightened patriotism is is capable of of feeling shame at our moral moral failures. And to use an example, just to take an example I, I use in the book, when we have recognized, uh, Congressional National uh, Congressional Medal of Honor winners who were 
previously overlooked because of their race. What is this but an expansion of the American family mm-hmm. and a recognition of the of the contributions, the vital contributions made by people who who had been overlooked or de- just denied by by previous generations? That is something very patriotic, and I think in that respect, I argue in the book, patriotism for those listeners who are worried that patriotism suggests uh, uh, that we can't be critical or that that it suggests uh, overlooking faults. I I argue no, that patriotism can be self-correcting. It it can be self-critical. And patriotism is a rational disposition. It's not just a kind of irrational, uh, you know, my country right or wrong. I very much distinguish patriotism from those those sentiments. So, Stephen, in in wrapping this up, one of I, I was attracted to your book um, for a variety of reasons. One was I think that this way we have politicized patriotism is to our detriment, mm-hmm. and I wanted to understand what it was that might be driving that. And I think your your book takes a a long historical book going back view going back to uh, the ancient uh, Greeks. And the other perspective it brought is a reminder that we have been here before. The, there are ebbs and flows over uh, the centuries in our own country where we have been in this spot before and we have emerged. But what particularly attracted me, and I'd like to close with your thoughts on this, is that we can each do our part to work towards our ideals. It doesn't mean that they haven't been imperfect or you use the word shame, that it doesn't mean that we've gotten it right. But under the umbrella of the sometimes maligned, sometimes revered quote, that the arc of time bends towards justice, what can we each do? What should we each pay attention to in a desire to create this kind of what you refer to as enlightened patriotism? We can only do what we can, obviously. I think it's important for those on the left. I don't know if I should admit this or not, but I, I still consider myself to be, you know, on the left in some in some way. Yeah. On, the, on the liberal side of the left, not the not the far left, but on the liberal side of the left. The book was written in part, not entirely, but in part to tell people on the liberal left not to give up on patriotism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very, it's been very easy. The, the left is very uncomfortable with, with, with the language of patriotism. It's just not the language that they're used to. But I think liberals and the left neglect patriotism at their, uh, at their peril. In a deeper sense, Americans are a very patriotic people. They care about flag and country. Mm-hmm. These are symbols that mean something to, to most people. And if the policies of the, a Biden administration or a liberal administration are to carry meaning, I think they have to be grounded in the language of our national traditions and our national our national patriotism, not to run away from these, not to declare, you know, like the New York Times has done the 1619 project, the whole history of America is one tainted irreparably by racism and so on. No, we have we have to recognize these these facts. And acknowledge yes. it. But we 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 have acknowledge it and recognize it, but we can't we, we can't simply reject our past and reject our history. We have to ground our policies in a deeper understanding of who we are and how we have become this. I think on the whole, conservatives are better at doing this. 
Uh, maybe it's part of a conservative disposition. They want to conserve something from the past so that history and the past has, has a greater sort of emotional and intellectual uh, uh, meaning. But I, I think it's something that those on the left really need to recapture if, if their policies and programs are to have wide uh, acceptance and, and legitimacy. And the book was written with this, with this question or with this proposal in mind that patriotism is not just, as I say in the book, it's not some sort of mafia code of omerta, kind of silence. Uh, patriotism invokes ideas of pride, loyalty, service, toleration, civility, rule of law. These are all virtues that a, a decent patriotism can uh, re help to help to reaffirm, and I think the book uh, is an attempt to to make that case. Uh, I would I would call it in some ways the, the liberal case for patriotism. Mm -hmm. Well, Stephen, this is what you know. We could have we could have talked for another hour. <laughs> um, there's there's a lot uh, to talk about, and I think your your book gives us the template for us to begin uh, that conversation. We've been talking to Stephen Smith, the author of Reclaiming Patriotism in an Age of Extreme. Stephen, thank you. Thank you for the book. Thank you uh, for the conversation. And this is just the beginning. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. Produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.